Come with me to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Let me read the first seven verses to prepare us for hearing the word of God and the advent of Christ our Savior, and then I will lead us in prayer. Titus chapter 3, Titus 3. Paul's letter to the man he left on the Isle of Crete. Titus had been commissioned by Paul to establish churches and leaders leaders throughout the island of Crete. And this is his letter to Titus informing him how to do that and instruction to the churches about that as well. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly, Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Would you bow with me? Father, we come this morning thanking you for the message of this gospel of Jesus Christ that you have made known to us. Thank you for the salvation that we have found in the gospel. The hope of heirship, sonship, eternal life, joy in the future, and freedom now. This is what you have worked It's not we ourselves. There's nothing commendable in us and everything commendable in our Savior. And that's how we were saved. Not only have you saved us, but you have equipped us with this gospel message to take to our family, to take to our neighbors, to take to our community, to take to our state, our country, and around the world. And we are well aware that just as we do not save ourselves, we do not save anyone else either. But it is always the power of your word coming through the person of Jesus Christ and being used by the Spirit of God to regenerate and bring dead men to life. Thank you. Thank you for our pastor Keith and his son Alan and for the ministry they've shared this week in Guatemala. 
You've been gracious to them and we ask that you would take what they and the others have done in sowing the seeds of the gospel there. And would you be pleased to implant those seeds deeply in the lives of those who've heard and that there would be much transformation in that community. And then would you be pleased to bring them both back home safely to us tomorrow. And that they and we would be rejuvenated and impassioned with the gospel because of what they've done. And now, Father, we are headed into a Christmas season, a Christmas week of anticipation. Certainly family and friends, festivities, gatherings, meals, and a variety of Circumstances which give external joy to us are in front of us, but Father, might we not be captivated by those things? For truly, some of us may not have some of those things this week. The family that we want to gather with, we are unable to gather with, either because of death or distance. And the gifts that we would long to give And the gifts that we would long to receive are not available to us because of the financial position in which you have placed us. We love to be generous, but we might not be able to be generous. And we might not have those who could be generous with us. Oh, but Father, we are not destitute this season, for we have the riches of heaven in the person of Christ our Savior. And might he be our consideration. And might he be our joy this morning and this week. And so now would you guide us as we think about the remarkable coming of our remarkable Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen. NASA's Apollo missions program successfully sent 24 astronauts to the moon Of those 24 astronauts, 12 actually walked on the surface of the moon. The last Apollo mission was sent up in 1975, and since then there have been numerous space shuttle flights as well as flights to the International Space Station. But no one has walked on the moon since 1972, now 50 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. So NASA started another space venture called Artemis. And the goal, again, is to place mankind on the moon, starting with its third flight in 2025. Its first flight was an unmanned flight, and it just returned to Earth on December 11th. While it was unmanned, it wasn't empty. It carried several artifacts into space, Among them, a commemorative coin from Apollo 8, a bolt from the Apollo 11 engine, and a mission patch from Apollo 17, the last Apollo flight that was made. While there is limited space within these capsules, um, most flights include some kind of artifact going up with the spaceship. And some of them are put on display in museums and Some of them are sold because it seems like once you take anything, even the most simple of objects, and send it into space and bring it back, it becomes more valuable. And so a variety of things have made the trip into the heavens. Dinosaur bones, 
than part of a dinosaur eggshell. Amelia Earhart's wristwatch, a 17th century shipping tag from the Jamestown colony. Human ashes. Some 1,500 people have been buried in space, as it were, by a company called Celestis. A bit of fabric from the first plane of the Wright brothers that flew. At least three different Olympic torches have gone into space. And 66 pounds of hops, which the brewer Samuel Adams used to make, of course, space beer. It seems that if anything goes into the heavens, it becomes more valuable. You know where I'm going, don't you? Of infinitely greater worth is the one who came from heaven to earth. The eternal God-man, Jesus Christ. And he is of infinite worth, not because of the place from which he came, but because of the person that he is. His value and significance is magnified by what he did. It's put on display by his coming. But he is of infinite worth, even apart from his coming to earth. This Christmas season, we're considering the advent of Christ from Paul's letter to Titus of all places. Last week we saw the promise of Christ's coming. This morning we're going to see the appearance of Christ's coming. And next week we will see the fulfillment of Christ's coming. These are passages that not only point out the importance of Christ's advent, but they also emphasize the hope of His advent. The joy, the delight, and the confidence that we can have Because of the fact that he came to earth for us. This morning as we look at Titus chapter 3 in verses 4 through 6. We will discover that every blessing for the believer. Is founded on the appearance of Christ on earth. All of our blessings flow from the fact that Christ has been revealed to us. And not just revealed to us. But he has come to us. In the person of the infinite God-man and to die in our place. As we think about this reality that all of our blessings are founded on the appearance of Christ on earth. I want to find for you three implications in this passage that come to us from the appearance of Christ. Three implications of the appearance of Christ. The first is found for us. At the beginning of verse 4, it is the motive of Christ's arrival. The motive for Christ's arrival. Now, if you were looking as I was reading, you will notice that chapter 3 begins what is the end of Titus. It's a very short letter. We read verses 1 to 7. It's only 15 verses, chapter 3. It's a very short letter. So this is actually the beginning of the conclusion of Paul's admonition to Titus and those who will be in the churches in Crete. He's given instruction for how leaders ought to function. That's in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. He's given instruction to the various members that will be in these churches. He's addressed both older men and older women, younger men and younger women, as well as the slaves in the church. That's throughout chapter 2. He has given a summary of the gospel and salvation. 
and what the gospel is to do. We find that in chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. Same word that we're going to see in verse 4. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And what is that salvation to do? Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us. In other words, the gospel is given to change the way we live and to give us the hope of the future in heaven with him. He's also given instructions for how believers are to relate to the government. That's in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 3, he has reminded the readers of what they were without Christ. In case they'd forgotten, he reiterates the necessity of the gospel because of what they were without the gospel. And it's not a very pleasant list. We were foolish once ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful. And we demonstrated our hatefulness in that we hated others. So it was our attitude to be hateful and we lived hatefully. Having reminded the Cretans about their spiritual past. In verse 4, he marks a transition and interjects hope. How does he do that? With a single word. But. It's not in the text because it doesn't make sense. But it almost seems as if there needs to be an exclamation point or like your texts sometimes, like six exclamation points after that word, but the contrast couldn't be more significant. This is what you were. But something has happened to dramatically transform and change that it is a startling contrast. And if you're thinking theologically, you can't help but think in this moment about all of the but God statements in the Bible. So this was the situation and this was the circumstance. But God has interjected himself into that and has radically transformed that. So Genesis chapter 8, after the flood came onto the earth and swallowed up everything on the earth. Every hill and mountain, every person and every animal, all of them consumed by the flood. Genesis 8.1 But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him on the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. God remembered and he acted. Genesis 50 Joseph reminds his brothers about their sin against him. And he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God. But God interjected himself into the evil of your sin. And he meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Exodus chapter 13, as Israel leaves the land of Egypt following their captivity there for 400 plus years, 
Exodus 13, 18. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. All of Egypt was against them and they had nothing except God. And that was enough. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. But God. But God. And that is exactly what the Apostle is inferring here. That into the sorrow and horror and the travesty of our sinful lives, God has interjected Himself. But God. That one word has led one pastor to comment. The late James Montgomery Boyce wrote, may I put it quite simply. If you understand those two words, but God. They will save your soul. If you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. This other pastor then writes, It is the perfect phrase for highlighting the grace of God against the backdrop of human sin. To the left of but God in Scripture appear some of the worst human atrocities characterized by disobedience and rebellion. But to the right of God, of but God is, excuse me, to the left of but God is hopelessness and darkness and death. But to its right, following but God, readers of scripture will find hope and light and life. Following God's intervention, the story of scripture becomes one of grace and righteousness and justice. But God. Now the question always is, why? Why does God interject himself in people's lives this way? Why does God interject himself in your life, in my life in this way? And in this passage, why would Christ appear on earth as the great manifestation of God's grace? Why? I'm glad you asked. Three answers. Christ has arrived because God is our Savior. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. That title, God our Savior, is unique to Paul. He's the only one who uses that title. Interestingly, the only place he uses that title is in the pastoral epistles. He uses it twice in 1 Timothy and three times here in Titus. We saw it last week. Titus 1.3 At the proper time, the promise of God was manifested. Even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. We'll see it in chapter 2, verse 10. Slaves should be not pilfering, 
but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And now it appears for a third time in this letter in this passage. Honestly, it would just be pure conjecture to say why, but perhaps, perhaps Paul in writing the pastoral letters to Timothy and Titus, talking to them about the foundation of the church and reminding them of the centrality of the gospel, is reminding them as well that the gospel flows from God, who is by nature a saving God. What's interesting about this particular phrase, though, is we often think about Jesus as Savior. But here he calls God the Savior. And when he uses the term God as he uses it here, typically in the New Testament, it refers to the Father. And so this verse is affirming the reality that not only is the Son the Savior, but the Father is the Savior. That there is, there is complete unity and harmony between Father and Son as they carry out the plan of salvation. The Father is working with the Son. The Son is working with the Father. And they are never opposed to each other. In fact, not only are Father and Son working together in the process of salvation, but all the members of the Trinity are engaged in the process of working out our salvation. The Father is the planner and the initiator of our salvation. We see that in this phrase. He is God our Savior. He's planned it. He's designed it. He's purposed it. He's the one that made the promise to the Son, chapter 1, verse 3, about a redeemed people. The Spirit is the instrument of our redemption and our regeneration. Did you notice that, verse 5? He has washed us by regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us to live a new life. And of course, the Son is the agent of our regeneration He poured out the Spirit on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God, the entire triunity, is our Savior. He belongs to us. He is our Savior. We belong to Him. We are the ones He saves to bring to Himself so that He is glorified. We are His and He is ours. He and He alone is our Savior. And don't miss this. It is His nature to save. That's His identity. His identity is God the Savior. We see that in the name of Jesus Himself, Matthew chapter 1. And you're familiar with that passage, Matthew chapter 1. The angel tells Joseph that he will call the newborn son Jesus... Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. Yeshua, God saves. That's the nature of this one who will come. It is in His identity to save. Excuse me, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us in verse 21, In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. And God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It is God who saved. It is His nature. It is His desire. It is His longing. It is His identity to save. And we don't have time to read all of the passages in the Psalms that affirm the reality that God is Savior. That's who He is. Why did Christ come? 
Why did God interject himself into our lives with this massive contrastive but? Because that's the way he is. He loves to save because he is a savior. Christ came as an expression of the unity of the Father and Son in salvation. The second reason that Christ came is that because God is kind. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. When the Scriptures use the word kindness, it typically indicates something about a goodness of heart or goodness of action, goodness expressing itself in a variety of deeds. When it's used about people, it has this idea of having a good disposition towards others. We have a good phrase in Texas for it. We, we would say that he is right neighborly. That's kindness exhibited from one man to another. When kindness is used of God, it has that idea of goodness. But when God is good, it's, it's broad. So God's goodness is expressed in His kindnesses towards people, but God is also good when He pours out His wrath on people. And so when we're thinking about the kindness of God, we're not just thinking about His goodness, because that's a broad term, but we're thinking about His goodness as it is expressed with His tenderness and his compassion towards people. And what we find in the scriptures is that God, God is kind towards all manner of people, not just those who will be redeemed by the Savior, but, but even those who are haters of him. So it says in Luke chapter 6, Love your enemies and do good. Verse 35, Luke 6, 6.35, Love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in your return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So even those who are wicked and opposed to Him, contrary to Him, have no desire for Him, God expresses His compassion towards them because God is kind he is also particularly kind to believers that's Ephesians 2 right we're dead in our trespasses and sins but God interjects himself into our lives and saves us by grace through faith says John Stott because God is kind God took the initiative He came after us and rescued us from our hopeless predicament. There's this ungodly caricature of God that says the God of the New Testament, as exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ, is this kind and benevolent and caring God. But in the Old Testament, he's this mean, vindictive, wrathful, harsh, bitter old man. Oh, friends, his nature cannot change. He is kind. And he has been compassionate towards sinners 
from the day that Adam and Eve took that bite from that forbidden piece of fruit. In fact, he has been compassionate towards them and us before that, wasn't he? When the promise was made to the Son for the plan of redemption. Before sin ever came, God was kind. And that's why he sent the Son. And that's why the Son came. Because he's kind. And thirdly, Christ arrived because God loves all mankind. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. That word for love for mankind is the Greek word philanthropia. It's the, it's the combination of two words of love and man. And it's the word from which we get our word philanthropy. Man lovers, lovers of men, doers of good towards others, generosity towards mankind. And the word has the idea of compassion and kindness, a love that people generally have for those who are in pain or in trouble or in danger. It's not so much the idea of Love, as we think about love, this emotive feeling, but it has this idea of loving action, kind actions, generosity in action towards others. And to say that God loves all mankind is a reminder that God does not delight in the death of the ungodly. While he will unflinchingly pour out his wrath on sinners, he doesn't find a perverse satisfaction in it. Jesus, excuse me, the Father himself says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather... That the wicked turn from his way and live. So turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? In other words, you don't have to die. But you do have to repent. Or God will pour out his wrath. But that's not what he desires. That's not his longing. That's not his satisfaction. He longs. To bring people into his home, sinners who are rebellious against him. And we do well to remember that we are not saved because we loved God. But we are saved because he loved us. And he initiated that love while we were sinners, while we were haters of him, while we were opposed to him, while we despised him, he initiated love. Some of you have stories about how you found your spouse and how the first time you met, it was an unfavorable meeting, shall we say? Some of you tell the story laughingly now and say, to be honest, I really didn't like him. Something happened. And it changed your disposition. 
that person became kindly disposed to you and you became kindly disposed and then you loved. That's not the way it is with God. There was no kind disposition of us towards God. There was only hatred, animosity, bitterness, rancor against Him. And He loved and promised His Son a people who would be redeemed by His Son, who would forever praise Him. And then He sent that Son for us. Says J.I. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, it is staggering that God should love sinners. Yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely and one would have thought unlovable. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in man could attract or prompt it. Love among men is awakened in something in, by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves men because he has chosen to love men. We're going to see in just a moment that Christ came. The question here is why? Why would he come? What's his motive? His motive was obedience to the promise. We saw that last week in chapter 1, verse 2. And that promise was compelled, motivated by God's kind, saving love. Christ came because of God's saving, kind love for mankind. I want you to see, secondly, in this passage, the meaning of of Christ's arrival, the meaning of Christ's arrival. God's kindness is unlimited, enabling him to act as a friend to those who are his enemies. But we knew nothing about that kindness until it appeared and he initiated our repentance. So the, the last verse, last word in verse four is critical. The kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared as it were, popped up out of nowhere. In the midst of darkness, a brilliant light shone. It's a sudden appearance. Making a way clear for those who cannot see and those who are blind and those who are lost. This is the second time in this letter that Paul has used that word for appearance. We noted it in chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared. Bam! There it is, a brilliant light shining the way to righteousness and salvation. When did this grace and when did this kindness appear? Paul isn't specific in verse 4, but we understand that it came in the person of Jesus Christ and in the advent of Christ. He'll say, Something similar in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. The letter that he wrote after Titus. His last epistle. 2 Timothy 1 9. Speaking about God who has saved us. 
and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. There's a reference again to that promise that was made, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was, excuse me, which is granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. I read it twice, but it's good verse. It's okay to read it twice. But now, verse 10, this is where I was headed. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. How did we know the grace that was promised in eternity past? Because Christ appeared. Christ came. And Christ explained God. That's why we read John 1 earlier this morning. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He appeared. And now we know what God is like. And at the advent of Christ's arrival, there are indications that the participants in that story understood that they had received a particular kindness of God. Christ appeared. Christ came. And they said something unusual has happened. I mean, go back and read the story this week. Luke chapter 2. The shepherds spoke evangelistically about the arrival of Jesus Christ. Why? Because something remarkable just showed up. Mary exalted in the Lord. Chapter 1 of Luke. And treasured the events in her heart, chapter 2. Joseph obeyed the angel and gave the name Jesus to Mary's son as an expression of his understanding that something remarkable had happened. Joseph and Mary were amazed by everything that others were saying about Jesus. Simeon blessed God by saying that he had seen the salvation of Israel and the Lord. He looked at a baby and said, I've seen salvation. I've said a lot of things when I've seen babies. I've seen a lot of babies. And so have you. And none of us have ever said, salvation. Simeon took one look at that Christ child and said, this one's different. Anna thanked God for Jesus' birth and evangelized those who were looking for redemption. This is our Savior. The Magi rejoiced with joy when they saw the Christ child. Why? Because he's different. On that day, or in those days, those first weeks and months, when they understood, while they understood something of the kindness of the Lord, they would not understand the fullness of God's kindness in Christ's advent until Christ went to the cross and was resurrected. That's where we really see His significance. What's really interesting about this word when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. Is that word appeared is a really unusual word to use for the birth of a child. I hate to acknowledge this, but I've been a dad for three decades now. I know, I know you're looking at me, you'd never say that, but it's, it's true. And I've never said about my firstborn or her sister... On the day she appeared, well, well, she did, but you always say what? On the day she was born. Why? 
Paul's not the only one. The biblical writers consistently use this term about Jesus. John, particularly in his epistles, is prone to using that word, Christ appeared. Why? To preserve the uniqueness of Christ's identity. Certainly he was born. We understand that. The gospel writers, Luke, tell us he was born. We understand that. That's important. It's important that he's born because that demonstrates he's really a man. He's true man. But he's not just a man, is he? He's not just a baby. He's also deity. And how do you demonstrate that when a child is born, that child is also deity? You use a word like appeared because appeared means, implies, not that he was created in that moment, but that he already was existent and now showed up. And when he uses the word appeared, he's telling us he has already been in existence. And the implication is from eternity past. And now he has showed up not just as the Christ child, but as the Christ, the God of the universe. And so this word appeared upholds the truth of the hypostatic union that Jesus Christ is both truly man and truly God at the same time. And we need both. Because if he's not a man, he can't die in my place. If he's not a man, he's no better than a bull or a goat. A non-man can't die for a man. He's got to be a man. But he's got to be more than a man because an infinite weight of wrath is being poured out on the infinite weight of sin that's on him. And he's got to be able to bear it. And no man can do that. That takes God. So he must be man and at the same time God. Michael Reeves in one of my favorite books, Rejoicing in Christ, says this. To heal this race of Adam... Christ could not just appear in a body cobbled together and brought down from heaven. He had to take Adam's flesh and Adam's blood. Of course, he could have started a wholly new human race by taking dust afresh from the ground as he'd done with Adam. But that would do us no good. The old race of Adam would be left entirely unaffected by what he did. Outlandish as it may sound, we must say it, No umbilical cord of connection, no redemption. It took the God-man who appeared and he did as that God-man. That's the meaning of his arrival. Let us see thirdly the last implication in verses 5 and 6. And that is the manifestations of Christ's arrival. His motive, his meaning, his manifestations. I mean by that the results and benefits. But I needed an M. And manifestations was as close as I could get to results and benefits. So if you're trying to figure out what does he mean by manifestations, I mean what were the benefits that came from Christ's arrival? What, how was how was This good news revealed to us, what do we see in it? What do we get from it? Three manifestations, or excuse me, not three, uh, six, I think, actually. One, he saved us. He is not only God our Savior, 
but he really does save sinners. This is the one main reality of verses 5 and 6 with multiple explanations of how it is that he saves us. This word, he saves us, tells us that he definitively, completely, permanently saves us. When one is saved, he is not saved temporarily. He is saved wholly in every aspect of his being and he is saved permanently. How are we saved? From what are we saved? We are saved from sin. We are saved from enslavement to sin. You just have to go back up to verse 3. This is what we were. That's what he saved us from. He loosed us from that. So that we don't need to act that way anymore. We are saved from sin's power. But we're also saved from God himself. We are saved from God's wrath against us. We are saved from God's anger against us. We are saved from God's penalty against our sin. So he has saved us from sin. He has saved us from wrath. And he has saved us to good works. Verse 8. Just jump down to the last... to. To the verse after what we're going to finish up next week. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning those things I want you to speak confidently. So that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. We are saved so that we can not only not do the stuff that we did before Christ. But now we can do new things we never could do before. Be obedient to him. This is salvation. And it's available to all people. Verse 4. It's available to all mankind. But you must believe in Jesus Christ alone. If you are not yet a Christian, you are not beyond salvation. You might have listened as I read verse 3 and said, that honestly sounds a lot like me. And friend, God saves people like that, like you. What you need is simply to say, I can't do it on my own. We'll get to that in just a moment. I can't do it on my own. I trust Jesus Christ only. That Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. That he died on the cross for me. That he paid my penalty That God was satisfied by Christ's life and death on the cross such that he was willing to impute Christ's righteousness, grant account Christ's righteousness to me by believing in him. I believe that. And I believe that Jesus Christ is now worth living for. Friend, if you're not a Christian, that's that's the entry point into salvation and a new life with Christ is to believe that He and He alone is enough. Second manifestation of Christ's arrival, not just that He saved us, but He saved us because we are not able to be saved by ourselves. Now, the easiest way to read verse 5 in the English is to begin with the subject, He, and the main verb, saved, and the direct object, us. Didn't know you are going to get a grammar lesson today, did you? But that's not actually the way it's written in Greek. 
that main verb, he saved, is actually tucked away almost at the end of the end of the verse. There are 14 words in the Greek that precede he saved us. And all those 14 words demonstrate how we are not saved. Ted Turner once famously said, Almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you're looking at a Savior. Nobody is going to save you but yourself. I don't know about you, but when I looked in the mirror this morning, I thought, I'm in trouble if I'm the Savior. The Scripture corrects that. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It's not our righteous deeds that could save us. There's nothing commendable in what we did prior to salvation. There's no righteous deed that we could have done before salvation that God would have looked at us and said, that's enough. He's in. And there is nothing that we could do after our salvation that could preserve us in that salvation. As if God could say, well, I had to get things going, but now you're good and you can do it on your own. There's nothing before or after our salvation that will merit our salvation. God's nature demands righteousness. Now, I could put a lot of adjectives in front of the word righteousness. You know, absolute righteousness, complete righteousness, full righteousness, perfect righteousness. But righteousness is righteousness. And it means that there's nothing abhorrent or aberrant in it. And so when it says that God demands righteousness, it means that he can, he can accept nothing aberrant, nothing sinful. And brothers and sisters, that lets all of us out. God does not respond to any of our actions and any of our deeds and meritoriously grant salvation. And just a side note, that means that it is absolute folly for Paul or Titus or the Cretans or me to mock others in my own self-righteousness. Because I don't have any. There's nothing good in me on my own. If we're not saved from anything good in ourselves then just how are we saved? You know this. We talk about these realities all the time, but it's, it's good to review them. And Paul does that for Titus and the Cretans. He saved us in accord with his mercy. When he says in verse 5, but according to his mercy, we might have the idea of in proportion to his mercy. So as merciful as he is, he poured out that much mercy towards us. God's mercy is his ministry to the miserable. He looks at us and sees our pitiful condition and has compassion and pity and withholds his wrath and pours out kindness. He saves us by regeneration, by the washing of regeneration. This washing of regeneration means that we are cleansed of sin. He washes us and he gives us a new life. Regeneration means to regenerate, to bring to life, to bring to life again. So we were dead 
and He regenerates us. He gives us life. That's the beauty of all the resuscitations in Scripture. The beauty of all those resuscitations like Lazarus, right, and the ones that came uh, uh, from Paul and from uh, Jesus and uh, from Elijah and Elisha, it's not, hey, they got another 20 years or they got another 50 years or 60 years or whatever. It's that it's a picture of this is what God gives us in our salvation. He brings dead people to life. Resurrection, exactly. Saved us by regeneration. He saved us for renewal by the Spirit. The renewal is not the new life of of salvation. That's regeneration. The renewal here is the new way to live. He gives us a, 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 a new empowering Spirit. The Holy Spirit. To enable us to live in a godly way. We see that in verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds and meet pressing deeds so that they will not be unfruitful. That's why he came. So that we would live righteously. Saw that in chapter 2, verse 12. He instructs us to deny ungodliness, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. How do you do that, Spirit of God, in you? And that's why he came. He saved us. So that we might be sanctified and enjoy the blessings of that sanctified life. Can I just summarize it for you this way? He saved us. He saved us. The Father made a promise to the Son in eternity and said, We haven't made them yet, but there are people coming and they're going to be rebellious. And I'm going to send you to earth to die on the cross. And I will pour out my wrath on you. All the fullness of my anger against sin will be received by you. So that when you satisfy that wrath and people believe in you, they will be saved and they will join us in heaven and we will become one with them and they with us. And they will forever sing your praises and your glory. So the son appeared. And then he died and rose again to defeat death. And impute his righteousness. And the spirit regenerated us. And brought us to life. It's all the work of God. That was initiated. On earth. The moment. Of Christ's advent. He. Appeared. That's. The message of Christmas. Father thank you. Thank you. For the kindness of your salvation. The richness of your promises. And the obedience of Christ. And the power of the Spirit. That have all conjoined together. In the appearance of Christ. To bring salvation. Thank you Father that we can remember that. This Christmas season. Might we do well this week to remember this Christ, to consider this Christ who appeared and brought salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.